Welcome everyone to the April event for the Resilience Think Tank. I'm so glad you're here because we are talking about something that I think is a really high expectation leaders have of themselves about change and something that's incredibly difficult to deliver on. I want to begin by introducing Nika Jay. Unika is the president of Rewrite 365 with over 25 years of training, quality, and customer retention experience, and over a decade of senior executive leadership in corporations with annual revenues of up to half a billion dollars. She's also the matriarch of her incredible family and is raising her adorable six-year-old grandson. Unika, have you ever been surprised or frustrated by the impact of a change on your work or on your team? Absolutely. I think it happens every, sometimes it feels like it happens at least once a week. Um, we, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, you, you, you try and do all of the best planning to try and mitigate that, but it still comes, um, comes up. One that comes to mind more recently is one of my clients is doing, we had a year long plan um, around their, uh, their quest to actually become one of the top workplaces in the country. Um, and unfortunately, they, you know, with the CEO actually swapping out, um, they're actually leaving the organization and going to another organization. So that's a huge change that came and now we have to rework everything. And so we just handle it with agility. Yes. <laughs> and we're going to talk about that agility. Michael Fisher is a civil engineer. He leads civil engineering teams at RPS as they design airports data centers, and distribution warehouses. He's also the dad of four kids. Michael, have you ever been surprised or frustrated by the impact of a change on your work or on your team? Um, yes, I have. I think um, I think that's natural, really, because I think um, until you and I met maybe two, two and a bit years ago, I really didn't have an appreciation for resilience or, or change or the impact on change on people. Um, and when we talked about it, and I learned more about what resilience and change is, the more I started to notice it everywhere. Um, and I can particularly remember one instance where um, uh, a manager wanted to change an IT system and it was met by such resistance um, by so many people from the fear of what this new IT system might bring, how it might change how we operate. And um, I sort of was more su surprised and, and just more aware of how that leader was operating through that change. Yes, and boy, I. For some reason, in my professional experience, new computers, new tech systems are some of the hardest changes. Susan Borison is the editor of Your Teen Media, which she founded in 2007 after her careers in advertising and law. She is also the mom of five adult children, and today is her birthday. Sue, happy birthday. Thank you for joining us for part of your birthday. And I just wanted to ask you the very same question. Have you ever been surprised? or frustrated by the impact of change on your work or on your team? I mean, I don't know how life doesn't deliver that to everyone. I mean, it's it's like, if you can't get behind change, you're just gonna really be miserable all the time. And when I saw that question, I was considering what's my answer to the, like the, the most time that that happened. I, I mean, the list is so long, but the one that came to me was early on in the running of this business, we had, um, I always said we had embarrassment of riches with our staff, like everyone was overqualified for what they were doing. But there was one person in particular who I would say, if she leaves, we're done. And then she called 
And I was actually on an international flight flying home. I got back into my house. I swear she watched the plane land. I got into my house exhausted and I got a call from her saying, hi, we need to talk. And I was like, no, 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 no. Anyway. <laughs> we don't. Um, we don't need to talk. Yeah, this is not for now. Anyway, um, as it turned out, I mentioned it to a friend how devastating I found that change. And they said, well, if you could craft the description of who you want to hire next, including the things that this person wasn't delivering, what would you want? And it was this moment of like, oh, she didn't over deliver on everything. I mean, there were, there were frustrations there. And it turned from devastation to opportunity in that one sentence. I love that because it takes beyond just saying no one's indispensable because in truth, no one is indispensable in the workplace, but you're not just saying, listen, if you're doing a good job as a leader, nobody should be indispensable. You're saying everyone leaving that's doing a, a decent job is a frustration, but just about anyone leaving is also an opportunity. And I have never thought about it that way before. And I too have thought in my business, boy, it, it's going really well and it couldn't without one person. And so that's, that's really encouraging. So Sue, I'm going to stick with you, not only because it's your birthday, but I want to know because you have been running a media organization and the media industry has changed so much in the 16 years that you've had, that you've run a media company. And so I'd like to know, when did it become clear to you that like, we are going to have to not just react to what's happened, but also anticipate change. And what did you do to try and either anticipate it or prepare for it? I, I might be the wrong person to have invited on this one, because I, I don't think that we've done such a good job of anticipating. What we've done is a great job at riding waves. So media, first of all, my business partner and I both, she was a banker, I was a lawyer. We came into this project with no background on what we wanted to accomplish. It was a, a hole in our own lives that we wanted to fill, advice for parents of teenagers. And, um, and it, was, it was a gift to actually come into a, a, like media in general that was falling apart and always seems to be falling apart without ever having to say, well, we've always done it this way because we didn't have and always done it this way. So we were creative every single day and we just kept throwing things up and seeing what would stick. And over the years, we, we were praised and criticized for that approach. Um, and we also started to see that like there would trends would come and, and we would jump on board. We'd even get on early and then they would, you know, the wave would die down. So we'd be looking for what's the next wave to ride. And that is a challenge in an industry that's ever changing. I do want to say, though, that my first real business was my family. And, um, and I didn't know for a long time that I operated it like a business, but I did. I tried very hard to plan for every possible scenario so that things would go perfectly. And the hardest thing about that planning was that when it didn't work, I was off my game. I was mad. I, you know, it was like, I did everything I was supposed to do. And now you play your part. But, you know, those five children had their own thoughts and what was going to happen. And I think I bring that same learning into the business, which is that if you don't have the ability to pivot, it's, it's just going to be a frustration all the time. It's less about the planning in my mind. I mean, of course you do the planning, but knowing that the planning is only going to take you so far you need to know, well, what do I do? Not if it doesn't work, but when it doesn't work. 
And that's been true in my family life. And that's totally been true in my business life. That makes total sense to me. But I also have tons of empathy for that mom and that business leader who's like, okay, but if I plan ahead and I did my part, I should be rewarded with everything going. I, I should get my gold star. My gold star is everything going right. And since we know, of course you're right, that you can't, you often can't plan or anticipate, is there anything you think leaders can do to prepare for the inevitable fallout? Because yes, well, you should be able to pivot, but also change is hard on your people, whether you're thinking about your family or your business. So what do you do to help prevent or navigate how that lands with them? I think that one of the things we've done well has been collaborative with the people we work with. There's, it's very not top down. And so I think everything's a discussion. I mean, it just comes out in a way that really smart people are gonna to collaborate together and come up with solutions because we didn't anticipate this happening. And one of my favorite things about that process is at the end, someone says, I loved your idea so-and-so. And they go, that wasn't my idea, that was her idea. And nobody can get back to the origin of it because it was true collaboration, like a word brought on another idea. And at the end, some really great things bubble to the top. Um, and I, I would say that that process has really just, I love it. So I love it in every space of my life. I love it in volunteer work I do. When um, the, the best part of it is that no one can identify whose idea it was. That to me is success. That's really helpful. Okay, terrific. Unika, can you tell me if in your business, I can't say, I can't say when now because you pointed out that maybe we can't prepare for all change, but have you done anything to try to anticipate change, prepare for change with your business? Yeah, for our team, so um, looking at it um, from the perspective of my consulting firm, we, the team will plan out, you know, we plan out everything probably to a level of detail that makes me uncomfortable, but there's a person on my team that it makes me uncomfortable, so we do it. Um, but we plan those things out, but we have contingency plans on top of those. So we plan for if, you know, if a client decides to go a different direction, we plan for if, you know, we can't get certain budget things in time, we plan for staff uh, changes or the inability to get the appropriate resources. So for us, it's about not having just the foundational plan, but being able to be flexible in our approach to be able to get to the same destination so that we don't freak out about the change, right? So that's saying, this is the best plan. We think this is the best way for us to go. And this is the resource allocation here at the budget, but we allow for some wiggle room in there for plan B, C, and D. And sometimes there's a plan that comes up that's not even on the paper because some, some clients in some situations can get completely out of control. But I found by giving people a compass, if you will, um, or directionally on where to go to, if something happens, they have good if and then statements to say, if this happens, then we do this. If this happens, then this, we do this. So we don't lose a lot of the timing um, and we're able to continue to move forward and you know do the things that we're supposed to do because we have these contingency plans that come up based on if and then. So to drill down into the weeds on that a little bit, when you say to your team, okay, we're working with company A and they've, mm -hmm. they've told us what they want, but we need to think about what they would want if this is different or this is different. Are you really writing up? Do you formalize that? Do you, or do you make it yeah. concrete in some way with your team? And is that expensive? Yeah, I found it's more expensive not to. 
because then you have either you miss deadlines or you go over budget. And, and if you, when you're in a consulting space, sometimes if you go over a budget, you eat that, you know, it's not like where you always can push that to the client. If you committed to something, especially if it's something that happened on your side. So it's, is it expensive? I think that it's more expensive when we don't just based on what we've learned in the past. And so we, I think we've gotten to a place on our team where there's a person that's really good at that. That person is not me. Okay, that's <laughs> not me, just so we're clear. Um, but she's amazing at that. So she'll go through and she can hear what I'm saying and what others are saying. And she easily documents that. But she does a lot of that uh, project planning piece on our, um, on our team anyway. That's really useful. I, I want to have another one more question for you. But before I do, I want to say to everybody in the room, as you're thinking about in your work, when you haven't had a contingency plan or when you should, when you have had someone who seemed indispensable quit and you had to move forward, or if that ever happened in the future, because it will, please think about what questions you have. Feel free to put them in the chat. We will get to them. Unika, I'd like to also ask you, even when you have contingency plans, changes can be hard on your people. If they have a relationship with that client, they're moving forward, they accepted that great first idea, and now the client comes back, or you have to say to that person in your organization, look, I know you guys think that's working well, but I can see that it actually won't. I need you to do something different. That probably still hits hard sometimes. What do you do to try and prepare for or navigate how hard that can be on your folks? So I think there's a couple of things at play. One, you have to communicate. We tend to over-communicate. There are probably updates I could stand to do without, but we tend to over-communicate. And the other thing is, um, and I don't know how much organizations or how appropriate this is, but this is what we do. I mean, how appropriate to be for the audience. We use the personality typing tool. So we kind of understand what stresses each person on our team out based on their personality type, because our team, there's only nine of us. And so for larger teams, We've done it, I think, for teams as large as probably about 40. Um, but we have, we, that's, that sounds so bizarre, I think, for some folks, but we understand what trick, our triggers are, what our stressors are within that, that immediate team. And even for our clients, we use the same tool on them. Now, given that, we, having that heart-centered approach from a leadership perspective and coupling that with my gut and also with the wisdom that I have, it's approaching each person uniquely, understanding what they may need from you as a result of the change at the human level. Because the change is at the business level, you know, as for you know, the actual action of it. But that human level component, what we do to anticipate it is one, we have as much knowledge as we can about the client and or the staff that's worked working on that. And by having that knowledge, or and even if you don't have the type of tool that you're using, hopefully you know these people. Like if you're onboarding a client, you have a conversation with them, you can kind of ask them questions, but we try and meet the human level first. So if I know that there's someone like the person who draws up all our plans, she is adverse to change. <laughs> like that thing that triggers her. Like she's like, oh my God, I can't believe they changed that again. It's okay. That's what they do. Um, I'm not as much. I just go with the flow. But because I know that about her, how I will literally take the executive communication that there's some sort of change. And then I have a conversation with her and talk her through it in a way that lands better on her. But I think knowing your people is important and understanding what actually stress them. And even not assuming that everyone is going to take the change in a, in a difficult manner. Some people are more are wired to just go with the flow as it relates to change. And then it allows you to accurately disperse the energy to the folks that actually need more um, attention or handholding through a change. Something I know about from my research, but I wonder if you've experienced in person, is that you have you can have people on your team who do seem wired 
to just go with the flow more easily and handle change. And then every once in a while, they'll surprise you. They'll have a sudden drop mm -hmm. in resilience. Resilience being that ability to navigate change and come through it goal-oriented. Have you experienced that? Somebody that in general, you think they do this well, but then, um, and then suddenly they, they shock you with how hard a change is? Absolutely. And what you, that, that part's really good because even though I'm wired, like I really feel like I'm wired to go with the, I like certain things, but I'm just kind of out here. If my emotional intelligence is not high, if I, and to the basics, which you know, I haven't eaten, I haven't slept well, I have a ton of other things on my plate and maybe they got my drink wrong at Starbucks this morning. Like when you give me that change, <laughs> that's the last thing. I'm at my tipping point. I'm done. I cannot believe that. But I think it's, you know, it goes back to thinking about, you know, even from creating a psychologically safe environment where you learn to look for the safety. Like, it, and it, it, I, I won't step away from knowing the people because when you know the people, you can tell. My team knows if I send emails and it's one word, I'm probably in a space. Like, there, there's a, it, we're, she's in a, a certain space. And so it's, when you see that a person is responding differently because you've learned to look, to listen, to hear them and, and actually know them at the human level, then you have to pivot. Like Susan said, you have to be in a position to be able to pivot and meet that person where they are. Okay. All right, Michael, you run much bigger teams. Um, Unique has built this business of all her own that she knows these people incredibly well. And you came into a corporation and you've moved jobs a couple of times within that organization where you've had to deal with whole groups of people that you have not gotten a chance to know that well. So coming at it from that point of view, because a lot of us do, what do you do to anticipate or prepare for change and then navigate that fallout with your team? Well, I think there's something that both Sue and Unique have both said about planning. And it reminded me of a phrase which was, and I'm going to get this wrong slightly, I think, but the phrase was, uh, a plan never survives the first contact with the enemy, which is a military saying. And what it basically means is that um, Whenever we make, however good a plan we make or contingency plan we make, whenever we get into the thick of it, it all goes out the window and we all end up, you know, having to think a bit on my feet. So I found, and I, through, and I found this through reading research, but also through um, practical experience that the more rigid a plan, the more likely it is to fail and the more likely if it, if it fails or if it doesn't go according to plan, that um, we have a harder time. Uh, adapting uh, and, and dealing with the sort of change which, which inevitably comes along. So in terms of an anticipating, um, I first uh, accept that change is an inevitability, it's going to happen. Um, working in construction, as you said quite rightly, uh, the people on our team, it changes all the time. Certainly during the COVID pandemic, I haven't had the same team for the last three years. I've changed and moved around the projects, the types of people, the teams. So constantly changing, constantly have to learn um, how new people sort of, sort, sort of operate. And so rather than giving people a strict and fixed sort of structure, trying to lead sort of more intent based. And, and, and um, I'm not military myself, but some of the research and, and the practical experience that I uh, have experienced is giving people a goal intent and allowing people the sort of flexibility in order to work uh, on 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 the project or the task that they're operating um is is effective um but what i found is that certainly in the construction industry that so so many people conditioned that um if things go wrong 
um, you know, that we, we start to panic and get um, fearful of, of, of something's changed. Um, and, and as a leader, uh, my, my job is uh, what I what I try and do is is to um, encourage failure. You know, which sounds really weird, um, but I think you know, we we have standards changing all the time. We have teams changing all the time. You know, one of the biggest issues that we have to cope with at the moment is sustainability. So um, to try and combat com combat the fear of change, I try and get the team that I operate in to be the change makers we're going to make the change rather than be fearful of that change um, and so that's encouraging people to sniff out new opportunities new things that are coming along potential changes in the standard and get curious and really investigate what that change is potentially going to be and try and look at how um, th that might you know try try something that might be a little bit different and the, the fact that we, we fail uh, uh, so many times is, is, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing because we, personally, I see it as an opportunity. And the more that I sort of uh, practice these things, I, I find that the, the, the team are um, feeling safe enough. And, and, and Unika, um, you, you mentioned about creating the psychologically safe environments. That sort of um, allowing people the freedom to be in, uh, inquisitive about something that's about to change potentially, um, and and go and explore it. Try something different. Fail is your failure is okay. Failure is part of the process. Um, I, we get sort of more mentally fit people that are able to sort of slightly deal with change. And and, and if I may, one of the other things that we do in terms of uh, anticipating change is at the beginning of a project, um, we look back on our past projects to sort of understand. Uh, what went well in past projects what 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 did we learn what didn't go so well and what have we learned from that um and um that sort of gives us the motivation and knowledge that we can go through this next project and we can cope with whatever changes might come along because of everything that we've done before because of the journey that we're on and if we if we're change makers and we have this end goal that we're gonna you know you know create the most um, you know sustainable project or whatever it might be then you know, we can see ourselves along this journey, which is everlasting, everlasting through people and the changings of people in the team. And it's everlasting through projects as opposed to swapping from one project to the next. It's about how is our team uh, going to come together and have a common goal and what we're going to what we're going to achieve over time. And the more that we progress towards that goal, we can look back at how well we've done. The more we can see how, like, yeah, we've, we can cope with what's coming ahead because we know we've dealt with what what we've what we've gone through. All right, Michael, one follow-up question about that. When you say that you encourage failure in your team and try to create this environment of having a curious mind, do they believe you? Or rather, no. what do you do to try and get them to, to believe you, that you really mean it? It's how you turn up as a leader, you know, because, um, and, and I experienced this through my early stage of my career, when I did something wrong, it was bad. When I was at school, if I didn't do so well on my test, it was bad. And I'm—I have dyslexia, so I'm—I'm—I went through school uh, of hard knocks. When all through the school, it was a case of I'd get everything wrong. I wouldn't get any spellings correct. I wouldn't wasn't very good at reading. I was poor academically, so I was very uh, resilient already to to trialing and, and sort of failing. Um, and and what it felt like if you were uh, reprimanded for not doing so well or failing or not going right. So. Um, it's, it's about how you show up and, um, you, you know, it's, a, it's this phrase of um, the word yet, 
you know it's it rather than saying you, know, you can't do it it's like we can't do it yet um so we found one way that it doesn't work let's go on and have another go and find another way that does work um and and it's consistency and it and, it, and it's you know um determination if, as long as you're consistent and you show up every day and and you're um you know responding rather than reacting you um you, you're creating that trusting team where people you know feel safe enough to be able to try and feel like i'm not going to be penalized if i do get it wrong boy that takes such intentionality as a leader and i really think that that's a theme i hear moving through all of these but before i talk about what i heard let's ask some of the questions that have been coming up from people in the room and sue i'm going to put this first one to you first i understand that a lot of your work in teen media has been thinking about how gen z is interacting in the world and this question was about millennials but because gen z goes up to age 26 now and we are or will be working with folks in that generation really soon someone asked would millennials be okay i want to ask you would do you think millennials or gen z would be okay if the technology went away altogether or there was some sort of non-technical more human skills driven change how do you help gen z and millennials when they can't lean on technology to navigate a change wow uh, <laughs> that's a very light question let me think um we we talk about this all the time because uh, you know we just had a facebook live yesterday that we all talked about how you know, if we could only get our kids off technology and we all acknowledge that the ship has sailed. So the idea of pulling back on what, it's, it's how they were raised. It's the only reality they know. And we would basically be saying, like in law school, I had to sit in a, in carols in a, in a library and open up book after book to do research. And they get that, and that could take days and they get it in a minute. They, you know, I mean, how do you, how do you change that? I, I don't think that they're prepared at all, any more than we're prepared for the way it exists right now. They're not prepared for a world without that. So are my kids afraid of chat GPT? Not at all. They think it's the coolest thing. Am I afraid of it? Yeah. What does it mean? Like, what does it mean for cheating in a world where kids are ready? Those lines are so blurred. So I don't even know how to answer your question because I don't, they don't know a world without it. Yeah, it occurs to me that I think millennials or Gen Z would question the premise of that. How can there be a change where you wouldn't at least research using technology or reach out for support from folks using technology to handle it? And, and so I think in that question is some change needed by those of us who would ask that question in the first, first place to stop looking at technology as a sometimes thing or it only touches some aspects of life and to say that there is change where human to human interaction might be a better bet. It might be more useful. I would, I would say that the, the thing I would love to see change is people coming out of college, getting jobs where they have to go into an office. I think that that is one of the biggest downsides of, of COVID because where do you make your networks? Where do you do your ideating? Like where does all of this kind of I know, I don't even know what the expression would be today, but the water fountain chat, right? Like, it, where does that happen? And it's lonely for our kids to, even though they think- You think work from home is a danger for kids coming I, I think, out of college I think, and that Yeah, I mean, I think when we're talking about anxiety and depression right now, I mean, who's checking on these kids? 
They're, they can literally be, and they want the freedom of working from home, by the way, that's really desired, but they don't actually know what they're losing in that equation. I think that because we never go backwards, we will never go back to the water cooler conversations because the truth is that even the last five years before the pandemic in offices, we saw trends across industries that people stayed more in their cubicles anyway. They brought their food and they you know, brought their big, big water bottle and they hung out there online connected with people. So I think it'll be a question of where do we encourage our people and our organization to go for networking and support and if anybody in the chat is saying, oh, this is obvious to me, and I know exactly where they should go, I'm really curious, but we need to look for the new water coolers. I don't think that pining for the old water coolers is gonna be all right. that valuable. <laughs> um, Unika, somebody asked, and I was really curious, you said that you do something in your organization where you get to know people's personalities through testing. And um, the question was, I'm curious to hear from Unika, which tests she's leveraging to understand people and how change affects them. The person gave us some examples, but I wondered, what did you use? I think I said I use personality typing, so it's not necessarily an assessment. It is the, so we use the Enneagram. So I am a master facilitator and coach for the Enneagram. And the reason why we chose the Enneagram is because it gets the closest to wiring and allows a lot of the different dynamics of personality to shine through. That's really interesting. And I'm actually consulting for an organization that a part of my onboarding to consult for them they asked me to take a different typing test. I guess, sorry, if there's a difference between testing and typing, I apologize. Um, it's not my field, but they asked me to take, and it really was an assessment, 34 questions, answer them in 20 minutes, and it gave me two labels. And then they asked me to share that with their entire group and everyone shared theirs with me. And then I thought, here's the problem for me with this. It's only, great, now what do I do with that? In medicine, we always say, never do a test unless you're going to do something with the answers. Clearly you do something with the answers. But my experience was, boy, now I need to do a lot of learning to understand how to utilize these answers. Can I share something really quick? Please. So I had a, a, we had a staff meeting this morning with two of my lead facilitators with going into a higher ed organization to do their um, a strat of one of six strategy sessions based on the different, you know, the different groups within that organization. And so when we got on the phone um, or we're on Zoom this morning and we're chatting about it, now, you're, I'm going to say something. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, this won't make sense, but it'll give you an idea of the utilization. So, for example, we literally jumped in and I said, hey, the CEO, he's a three with a two wing. So that means they know now how to interact. What's his triggering words? What's his behavior look like? How can we tell when he's getting frustrated? How can we identify the triggers? And so then I said, hey, you know, so there one, I really want you to lean in on this. I want you to use your three so that you can match his energy. You both know that I'm an eight and I don't care. I can't bring the emotional piece that you want to have there. Like I won't, I can learn to see if it's safe, but it's more for protection than for me to be able to lean into that heart level and get in touch with the feeling. But the two facilitators I'm bringing in because I don't bring that dynamic and the CEO doesn't, the president of that college doesn't have that dynamic. They're coming in and they're balancing me, whereas I'm gonna get, move the big strategic pieces forward. I'm wired that way. They're wired more for that. You must wish people came with a tattoo on their forehead of what their numbers were. It wouldn't mean anything mm -hmm. to me, but I, I imagine you kind of wish that. And it brings us actually to the last question I wanted to talk about in this Q&A section. Someone asked, how do you, and I'm going to ask each of you to answer this if you don't mind, how do you react when you identify drops in resilience? Somebody who is below their own baseline for being able to handle change. How do you handle it in yourself? 
if you recognize it in yourself, or what do you do if you see it in someone else? Or normally you would expect, and they would expect that they handle something at a certain level, and for whatever reason, they're not there. Um, so Sue, can I start with you? What would you normally do in that situation? Um, so for myself, um, I, I need time. I need time to kind of like pause and reflect on what brought me to that place. Um, and in my best self, I call it out on myself and let everybody know that that wasn't my best moment. Um, when it's other people, I don't, I don't really find people acting out of character so much. What I find is that what they do is they get better at the requirements of kind of being part of a group. And some of the, like, for example, I have somebody who starts out with no, like, can you look this up? Can we do this? And the answer is no. So for like three years, we've been working at, um, you know, let me take a, let me look at that. And so she is now fantastic at not going with her visceral reaction to things of, of being like anything that makes her nervous. She wants to say no. And now she does always say, oh, I'm not sure. Let me take a look at that. But the minute her anxiety rises, she goes back to where she naturally resides. So that that's that's the more typical scenario that I witness. And um, you know, it's bad when we're all anxious and we're all kind of defaulting that because we have moments where like the tech isn't working and when we're in the middle of a webinar or something. And those are not always pretty when more than one person is doing that. If only one person is defaulting, then everyone else kind of covers and says, like, okay, take a rest, take a breath, you know, we've got it. Um, but we work at it, everybody works at it. And, and, and the way I feel about it is I am so grateful for the, the forward growth and nobody works in one direction. None of us go like fixed, I'm doing, I'm perfect now. I've, you know, I've taken all that advice in and now I've really nailed it. We all kind of take two steps forward and one step back. And I think allowing for that gives a certain amount of freedom to come to work not on, on your not best day and still be loved and embraced and productive and et cetera. I agree. Unika, what do you think? Um, so for myself, I'm, I'm always trying to make sure, I know it sounds so small, but that I'm eating right and that I'm sleeping well, um, because those things really impact, I know they impact how I feel, you know, I, I know they do. Um, and I think when I feel like I'm, I'm fighting against, you know, my own, my own ability to be resilient, I'm like, Sue, I, I need a minute. Um, I, it was Sue, right? Not Sue. I know we went between Sue. Okay. Um, I didn't want to offend you, but I, I, I do take a moment and reconnect with myself and say, okay, I'm asking myself, why did that trigger you? Or why are you in such a bad place? And what are some of the things I can do to pull myself out? Now, when you're looking, when I'm looking at staff, or even if I'm looking at clients and getting an understanding about what's pulling them one way or the other, what's causing that, uh, there's all those things that we have an opportunity, especially if we can see them. If we're on Zoom, you can even tell when folks are are leaving. Um, and I like to handle that separate from the group. You know, we'll check back in with them and say, how are you? Is there a way that I can support you? Is there something you need to you know, get into? You just need a minute. But sometimes they do just need a minute. You know, sometimes they just like, they just didn't take into the idea of taking that minute before they joined the group or something happened in that in the group setting or in the meeting or like she said when she, you know, you're know you in the middle of doing a podcast or a Facebook live and the tech is going all crazy they just didn't have the ability to, to automatically pivot to a better place and so I like to also help my team with those skills and strategies right 
talking about when you're here, how can you find yourself back to center? How can you get to a place where you're acknowledging where you are and you, you identify that it's happening before it actually manifests to all of us? So there are some things that you all probably know that happen in your body um, or in your mind or in your emotions prior to you literally pulling away from being more resilient. There are things that, ha that happen. So if we can identify those, you can try and mitigate them before they show up for the rest of the team. Michael, how about you? I think very much the same as everything that Susan and uh, uh, Unica have said, really. Um, I I think before you start leading people, I think you need to lead, lead yourself uh, and, and take care of yourself. I think if, if you're good in yourself, the ability to be able to lead others is, is dramatically improved. Um, and so I, w I do a lot of work on myself in terms of mental fitness, uh, meditation, you know, very much everything that Unika and Susan were saying in terms of checking in with myself, taking a step back um, and plenty of exercise and things like that. Sleep is not something I get with four kids, to be honest. Um, so that doesn't that, that doesn't help. I am, right. But yeah. I think I think it's important, um, it, you know, to to lead yourself first, understand yourself and um have good self-awareness because you can um, look back at a situation and sort of think, how did I behave in that situation? Was that right? And then hold yourself accountable. So if you're not behaving perfectly and you're not, or didn't react, or you reacted as opposed to responded, um, talk to that with your team, talk to that with your people, your partner, your family, and say, you know, I recognize actually I didn't quite handle that too well. Um, and I think by modeling that and modeling a bit of vulnerability, I think people start to do the same and see, show that in return. Um, and so it's about setting an example as well. I agree. I have one more question for all of you, but before we do, I wanted to point out a couple of things I found really fascinating about this. In my work, I've learned a lot about something that's called when, not if planning. And you've each, not quite in those words, although Sue got very close to it, actually, you've said something about this. When not if planning is when we say to our folks, for example, uh, when we lose this client, when we're in the middle of a webinar and the text goes south, when they don't have the budget they thought they did, when we have to switch teams or switch projects, instead of if, and then we talk about what we might do or what the plans would be, those contingency plans, it turns out that our brains take that in differently. The difference between when and if is for our brains the difference between strategy and failure. And so, and that panicky feeling that Michael was saying people in construction often get when things start to change and not go right is mitigated a lot by that when conversation beforehand. Our brains, our people may not remember what we said we would do when that happened, but what they, the crucial part is our brains remember, oh, this was a tripwire to do something, not a panic button. And so it's really useful to use that when not if language. Leaders sometimes hesitate because they think, boy, if I say when we lose the client, when the product fails, my people will think I'm saying we're terrible at this. You can make it clear from your tone that you're not saying, I know you people are terrible, so obviously it will go terribly. You're saying, when this happens, we do this. And very rarely does this negatively impact how people see leaders. As a matter of fact, far more often they feel safer, more supported, and that there will be more structure moving forward, that they won't be discover like, oh my gosh, this parachute is actually just a backpack and I'm falling from the sky. There's nothing to catch me. 
So I wanted to really point out that all of you were talking about this when, not if language, and that when you build contingency plans, that's a big piece of what you're doing. But all three of you have also talked about the importance of creating a culture that allows for communication and collaboration. Shared curiosity, shared failure, shared planning in moving forward, and understanding what you called, um, Michael, intention-based, or I would say purpose-driven. When people know that they share a purpose, they are more likely to be able to find a new path to get to that same purpose. If the purpose doesn't change, if the mission doesn't change, it's easier for our neurotransmitters to accept that the path towards that purpose might change. Thank you so much for all of the incredible strategies. I only grabbed a couple of them in that sum up and I'll send out more when I send out my email. But before we go, I wanted to ask you each a fun question. We often need to recover. Sue and Unika, you both talked about needing a minute, right? And when we recover from change, from stress, it's comfort that leads to recovery. Comfort, we don't grow when we're comfortable, but we do recover when we're comfortable. So I wondered, could each of you, and Michael, I'm gonna start with you, Tell me about a comfort activity that you return to to calm your brain when you're dealing with a lot. Um, <clears throat> I suppose um, as a dyslexic person, I'm classic pro procrastinator. Um, so I've got tons of things on my to-do list and the best way to kind of relieve things and stress and tension is to kind of crack on with one of the things on the to-do list and just uh, work. And I'm, <clears throat> I wouldn't say I'm a workaholic, but I've got many balls in the air and I, 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 I find uh, doing different things, exploring different things, researching, um, building a, a new business or, an, or a new um, platform or something. It, it that is my hobby. That is what I go to to uh, relieve stress. That and running and eating Ben and Jerry's. Nice. Okay, so a combination of creating new businesses and eating ice cream. Fantastic. Unika, how about you? I play. Um, I have a six-year-old um, in the house, and so for me, you don't have any choice but to play. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I have a choice. Like I also have a nanny, but I, I have to keep my think through in my brain. Um, when I feel myself getting blocked or I'm extremely frustrated, there's nothing like defeating, like, you know, having, um, you know, Black Panther fighting, you know, hanging out with Captain America and running around the house with them or Woody and, uh, you know, you know, Bo Peep or whatever the case. And right now it's Mario, Mario Brothers. And so when movies come out, we, we buy them. Yeah, so we're just, we play it. I mean, we have active play. That takes me back without like mindset that then unlocks creativity for me. And it also allows me to not take these things so serious. You know, it's, it's not that it's, it can be serious, but it's not so serious because at the end of the day, I'm a superhero if I'm able to, you know, to be Captain America for today. So I, I, I literally play. How bad can it be? Captain America will definitely figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> right. If I can do that. Right. So. Right. Two, birthday woman. What do you do for comfort? Uh, well, first of all, I just want to say, Unique, I love that idea that that playing a game frees you to kind of get to an answer. I prefer perseverating, um, but I think yours is <laughs> Have better. you found that to be super successful? Oh, well, the, the problem is, the problem is I do find it successful, which is terrible because it reinforces that because through that, but that's not my mode. That's not what I do. That's like when I'm not paying attention. Um, I have two different lanes I go down. One is if it feels like I'm overwhelmed with the amount I have to accomplish, a to-do list is the gift of everything. Like 
just taking off that list some of the things so that the volume changes is like a, you know, I get my breath back. And if I'm overwhelmed emotionally, like by something that I can't figure out, then taking a long walk is like, it is a sure thing. Something, And it has to be outside, it has to be outside no matter what the weather is. And there's something about that, that just, um, you know, it takes down my blood pressure. It, it levels my breathing. It does all the things that all the, all of the doctors and all of the research shows. So those are, those are my two to goes. I'll share that when I really need comfort, music is my go-to, especially music that I know every lyric to and can sing so loudly that I embarrass even the children who don't live with me anymore. There are some real gems of resources in the chat that people have been so generous in the chat today sharing all kinds of ideas and thoughts. And I wanna end with this one. Bruce said that he worked with someone uh, who really struggled with change too. And so many of us work with people because change is hard and the human brain struggles with change. He said that this person always started with no and he would say, okay, but if it was yes, what would that look like? Thank you, everyone. I hope that you have a week filled with success and uh, a great month. And we will see you May 23rd. Have a wonderful day.